Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel. If you're new to the Old Testament, Samuel is toward the front of, the, um, of that portion of the Bible, right after uh, the books of Judges and Ruth. Ruth is the bridge between the period of the Judges and the period of the Kings. 1 Samuel is uh, the story of the first king, Saul. Uh, 2 Samuel is David's book. Last summer, while we were on vacation, Carolyn and I stopped off at the uh, Oregon Trail Interpretive Center in Baker City. And we were treated to a presentation by a young woman whose great-grandmother had made the trek from Kansas City to Oregon on the uh, trail. And uh, her presentation really hit home because she talked about uh, what it was like to make that journey. She put herself in that place and talked about her feelings, her excitement at uh, the camaraderie of working with other, uh, other people on the trail, uh, the excitement of seeing new places and uh, the sorrow and grief that came as a loss of her infant uh, daughter. Uh, it was a very powerful presentation. At the, and at the end, she told us that what she had done is give us a verbatim account from diaries that women had kept as they made their way across the Oregon Trail, and principally the diary of her uh, great-grandmother. And I nudged Carolyn, and I said, that's what the Psalms are. The Psalms are David's diary. In the books of First and Second Samuel, we read, objective history, the accounts of the uh, prophet, uh, the uh, historical events of David's life. But in the Psalms, we, uh, we see his emotions, his feelings, his fears, his furies, his frustration with God, his rage at God at, at times, his feelings of uh, loneliness. We get a peek into, the, into David's soul. We see David's heart as God saw it through some of those uh, awful circumstances. And I thought that would be a great series uh, to talk about the historical events in First and Second Samuel and then pair them with the Psalms that coincide. And that's what we'll be doing over the next uh, year. We'll first look at First and Second Samuel and the events that are portrayed there, and then we'll look at... Uh, at the Psalms that give us something of David's uh, emotions, his heart at those, at those times. The titles help us to some extent. Some of the titles which are quite ancient and can be, uh, can be believed tie these uh, Psalms into specific events, and we'll look at those Psalms. Others we have to rely on tradition and just good guesses. But it's my prayer that as a result of this study, you'll see David as you uh, have never seen him before. If you visit uh, Florence, Italy, and you go to the, one of the galleries there, you'll see that immense statue that Michelangelo sculptured of David, some 18 feet tall. Uh, Michelangelo was exactly right portraying David with such immensity. He was a giant of a man. Probably the most complete man in history, apart from David's 
greater son, our, our Lord Jesus. Here was a man with the uh, literary skill of a Shakespeare, the political uh, savvy of Abraham Lincoln, the uh, military genius of Alexander the Great, the hand-eye coordination of Joe Montana. Uh, I don't think there's ever been another human being quite like, uh, quite like David. But the real measure of David's magnitude was his heart for God. He was a man who was obsessed with God. He says in one of his psalms, One thing I've desired of the Lord. Sounds very much like the Apostle Paul. This one thing I do. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And that compulsion to know God, to love him with all of his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength. But then there was that other set of obsessions that he had toward ambition and greed and pride and lust. David's dual obsessions sound very familiar to me. He's my kind of man. But apparently he's also God's kind of man. He's described that way as a man after God's own heart. And what we will see in these psalms is the process by which God uh, created an undivided heart in David. He, He cries out at one point, Lord, create In me, an integrated heart, pure heart is the word he uses, but it means undivided, integrated, focused. Create in me a focused heart. And he uses the word that's used in Genesis 1 for the creation of the heavens and the earth. It's normally paired with the God who is the only one who could create something out of nothing. David says, create in me a focused, undivided heart. And uh, what we're going to be seeing in the weeks ahead is the process by which God took all of David's passions and loves and interests and integrated them into into one. Now, uh, I want to begin reading with uh, chapter 16. This uh, is a chapter that describes David's call. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have seen a king for myself among his sons. Uh, Some of the translations say provide. Uh, The word is see, to see. That's the theme, core, center of this entire section. Seven times that verb occurs, to see. And uh, what we're... What the prophet is doing for us here in this section of 1 Samuel is is letting us know what God sees, what's important to him, what's really significant. And here he says, I have seen a king for myself, not for Israel, but for myself. It's a very important phrase, as we'll see in a moment. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I myself will show you exactly what to do. It's literally what 
what the text says, and you shall anoint for me the very one whom I designate. No uncertainties, no ambiguities with, uh, with God. So on the strength of that conviction, Samuel did exactly, the text says, what the Lord said. And came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling, quaking, shaking in their boots to meet him. And said, do you come in peace? And he said, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab. It's one of those uh, to see verbs. And thought, surely the Lord's anointed, his Messiah, is before him, that is before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man sees into the eyes. But the Lord sees into the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, the Lord, uh, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the young men? And he said, There remains yet the little one. And behold, he's tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down to the sacrificial meal, I assume, until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was, he was ruddy, dark, complected, and uh, he had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David, rushed upon him, we're told, from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. And David went back to tending his uh, few sheep. Uh, King Saul, who was David's predecessor, was one of those sad sacks of history. He had enormous potential. He's described as without equal among his peers. Very impressive person. But he squandered away his, his potential. Gave way to pride and fleshly self-will and just, just withered away. At the end of his life, he said, I, I, have, I have played the fool. Because he would not lay hold of of God's forgiving grace, and he just kept clinging to his faults. The man went stark, raving, mad at the end of his life. Uh, we're told that here that, that Samuel mourned for Saul, not so much for Saul as for the nation. He saw this madman at, at the helm, and he could see uh, Israel hitting the rocks, and uh, he grieved over the state of, of the nation. But uh, God is never at a loss. When things look most dark and dangerous, that's when God can begin. And he usually begins by preparing some very insignificant person in some very, very small place.
And that's what we see uh, happening here. David was God's solution to all the evil that, that Saul had done. So uh, Samuel was sent on his uh, secret mission to Bethlehem to the family of, uh, uh, of Jesse, where, as the text tells us, God had seen a king for himself. At the time, David was uh, shepherding a few sheep out in the wilderness, but God saw him, and, and God saw his heart. Samuel was understandably uh, reluctant to go. I, I, I'm sure we would all feel the same way. He was afraid of, of Saul's insane uh, rage. And he questioned the wisdom of going. And it seems as though the Lord is guilty of, of subterfuge, duplicity here, because he said, well, just go and sacrifice. But for myself, I think Samuel was in the habit of itinerating throughout Israel, sacrificing here and there for the people. He was carrying out the function of, of the, the Levitical priests because the priesthood was corrupt during that, during that time. And, and the Lord is suggesting that under the cover of a sacrifice in Bethlehem that, that he anoints uh, the king. So God sets up the occasion for him. He tells him, I'm going to let you know exactly what to do. I will show you precisely the person that, that I have chosen. So as I said, in the strength of that confidence, Samuel did exactly what the Lord had asked him to do. When he arrived at Bethlehem, we're told that the elders came to him trembling, shaking, quaking. It wasn't that Samuel himself was so intimidating. It was the guilt of that place. Shakespeare says, uh, conscience makes cowards of all of us. This was a very wicked little town. We're all familiar with little places that look so cozy and comfortable. But underneath there's a, there's a hard uh, core of wickedness, and that was true in, in Bethlehem. This was the spiritual environment in which David was reared. Some of you come from families like that where your beginning faith was scorned, you're scoffed at because you... You trusted the Lord, and that must have been true of, of David. As a matter of fact, in one of his psalms, Psalm 69, he says, I, I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insult, insults of those who insult you fall on me. We know from Psalm 127, which is not one of David's psalms, but it was written about him, that that in his early childhood, he longed for the ark of God, not because the ark itself was significant, it was just a little chest, but it represented to David the place that he wanted to give God in his life and the place that he thought God ought to have in the nation. He says, uh, or the psalmist, the poet says in Psalm 127, we heard of it, putting, putting these words in David's mouth, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the poetic name for Bethlehem. So when David was a small child, he, he longed to bring the ark back to Israel. The Philistines had, uh, had taken the ark down to Kiriathirim, and it was rotting away in, 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 the, in the woods down there at the house of Obed-Edom. And nobody cared. In fact, one of the most significant statements in the whole book of Chronicles is the contrast that's made between Saul and David. As soon as David became king, he went after the ark. He went down to fetch it and bring it back to uh, Jerusalem, though there was no house yet. There was the tabernacle there. He wanted to house it in Jerusalem as a symbol of God's central place in the nation. Because, he said, all through the days of Saul, we did not seek it. 
It was David's heart. So he wanted he wanted God with his heart, his soul, his strength, his his mind. He lived in an environment where people could care less. He scoffed. They scoffed at him and scorned him because of of his faith. Samuel uh, explained to the elders that he came in peace and that he had come to make peace. He, he had come to sacrifice for their for their sin. And so the townspeople gathered, and uh, eventually they went to the the house of uh, Jesse, and and Samuel began to look at the sons of of Jesse. First saw Eliab, who was the the oldest of uh, Jesse's sons, probably a big, impressive-looking fellow, had a regal presence and. Samuel thought, surely this, this is the Lord's anointed. He should have known better because uh, he had learned from, from Saul that appearances could be deceiving. Saul himself was head and shoulders above his countrymen. But he had no heart for God. That's why he failed. And so the Lord uh, corrects him. Don't fix your eyes on his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks... At the outward appearance, into the eyes, but the Lord looks into the into the heart. See, we're we're impressed by certain things that underwhelm God. God's not at all impressed by beauty and size and intelligence and culture and background and status and power and money and all the things that, that just impress us. Those things don't impress him at all. He uh, he just looks into the into the heart. One of the Psalms, Psalm 147, says, His pleasure is not in the strength of a horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. Uh, Bill Herman and I take great comfort from that verse. I had the nickname Spider-Man in high school because my legs were so skinny. The Lord delights in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. You see, that's what draws out the heart of God. It's when he, he sees that way down deep inside we, we hunger for Him despite what we are, despite what we have done. He sees that, that longing for Him. None of uh, Jesse's sons uh, passed muster, though there were some impressive examples of manhood in, in the book or in the group. None feared the Lord, and none longed for his covenant love. And in each case, Samuel said the Lord has not, not chosen this one. Then Samuel said to, uh, to Jesse, Is, are these all the sons, the young men that you have? Aren't there any others? Because God had told him that he had seen his king in Jesse's, within Jesse's family. So Jesse, oh, Jesse says, oh yes, there's, there's the little one with overtones of belittlement and uh, insignificance in that term. The little one who's out there with the sheep. That's not a job to which anyone would aspire, believe me. It's like washing dishes in a restaurant at night. I mean, it is, it is the worst of jobs, being a shepherd. Shepherds were often pariahs, out, outsiders, out, outcasts. If David were living today, we would say he, he is an abused child, neglected by his mother and father, and 
mistreated by, by his brothers, by the, by the whole family, pushed out into the wilderness to, to fend for himself. He grew up a, a very, very insecure man, he had a terrible uh, family life. It was, a, it was a very dysfunctional family in which he was, he was raised. I would never have given David to Jesse to raise if I had been, I had been God. There was that occasion, we'll talk about it uh, in a couple of weeks, when David uh, brought provision to his brothers who were fighting the Philistines. What they were doing was cowering on the edge of the, the Vale of Elah, you know, afraid to confront Goliath, who had challenged the entire army. And David uh, wanders up to this scene with, his, uh, with some food for his brothers. And he says, what, what, what's going on here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And his big brother, Eliab, just climbed his frame. He said, I know your heart. I know your conceit. I know the wickedness of your, of your soul. You just came down here to see the battle, he said. And David said, what have I done now? It was just a question. See, those are the words of a beaten, whipped child. David was terribly abused. And yet, David said, though mother and father have forsaken me, the Lord has literally taken me in. Probably never got a hug from his father, but he got a lot of hugs from God. It was that awful family that, that drove him right into, into God's arms. His family never met his needs. But God did. At one point, David said, uh, it's good for me. <laughs> it's good for me to be afflicted in my youth that I might learn your statutes. Because he saw that out of the heartache and the loneliness of, of his family life, he had, had been drawn into a deeper love for his heavenly father. His family would have ruined him if he hadn't had that, that refuge. Perhaps you come from a very dysfunctional family. Maybe you were sexually abused or physically abused or emotionally abused all, all through your life. You were, you were battered, and if not physically battered, emotionally battered and, and mistreated. I, I don't know how many men I've talked to who have said they never got from their fathers. The validation that they sought, as Robert Bly said, there's never enough father. We never... We never get what we want from our parents, even from the best of fathers. But some of you had terrible fathers. The word father just evokes images of everything that you've missed out on in, in life. I feel for you. God feels for you. And he, and he says the same thing to you that David would say, though mother and father have forsaken me, the Lord will take you in. He'll comfort you. He'll give you that sense of security that, that you missed from your from your home. Well, uh, Samuel uh, asks about David, and they send for the boy. Apparently they had to wait for several hours while he found him. He was somewhere out in the desert. I would love for you to see a picture of the Judean wilderness. I hope to bring some slides at some point and show you that region of Palestine. It is the most desolate of regions. They had... That's where David was, and they had to, they had to find him. And 
and bring him in. And by the time they brought him to Bethlehem, it seems that the townspeople had scattered. The only ones that were left were Jesse and his family. And they brought the child or the boy in into the room. And he's described here as a, as a strikingly handsome young man. With uh, He was ruddy. Uh, commentators uh, interpret that phrase in different ways. I, it means red, basically. I take it that he was very dark-complected. He'd been out uh, in, the, in the elements. He was... Uh, burned by the sun. It says he has beautiful eyes. I don't know what to make of that when it's applied to a man, but I think startling eyes. It's the same word that's used for the city of Haifa, Yaffa, means beautiful. There's something about David's eyes that would immediately attract you. I was watching with Carolyn Operation Desert Storm on CNN a couple of years ago, and I saw this Israeli fighter pilot who was being interviewed, and he had this shock of black hair, and he was very dark, and he had these penetrating eyes. My attention was drawn immediately to his eyes. He looked like a hawk. And I thought at the time, I think that's what David must have, must have looked like. He's striking in his, in his appearance. He immediately attracted uh, Samuel's uh, attention. But God saw something else. He, he saw beneath that striking exterior into the heart of this young man. And he said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is he. This is the one that I've been, been seeking all of his, his life. So Samuel took the horn of oil in his hand and he poured it on the young man's head as a symbol of the special call that God had given to him to be king. Oil ran down over his face and over his garments. It doesn't appear that anyone understood except Samuel and David. Later history seems to indicate that uh, certainly his family didn't understand what happened. Josephus, who is uh, the Jewish historian of the first century, tells us, uh, bases his belief on tradition that Samuel bent over at this point and whispered in his ear, you shall be king. We don't know how David found out, but he knew what this anointing uh, symbolized. There was no, no question in, in his mind. And so with the new king anointed, Samuel went home to Ramah, and, and David went back out into the, into the wilderness, back into obscurity and contempt and solitude and, and uh, hiddenness. God never wastes uh, these times in, in the wilderness. This was a strategic time for David. This was a time of lonely fellowship with God. I have no idea how, how long he was there. It might have been years before he was called to the, to the court. It was there that David learned to wait. He says in one of his psalms, I waited and waited and waited. On the Lord, he describes himself in another place as uh, like a weaned child on its mother's breast. Weaned child, not clamoring, not demanding, but willing to wait for for God's uh, God's timing. As Paul would put it, it's out in the wilderness where he was he was endowed with all power for endurance and patience. It's in that loneliness where he, he learned to set the Lord always before his face. Henry Nouwen says that uh, the wilderness is a good place to learn because there's nothing out there that you can use. 
So you have to think about not what life provides, but what life means. And that's what David spent his time doing. And out of that uh, terrible loneliness, he was drawn to find that God and God alone was, was what he needed. For a lot of the metaphors that turn up in his psalms were, were developed out there in the crags and uh, precipices and, and mountainous uh, region of the Judean wilderness. He learned that, that God was his rock and his redeemer. And there while he was uh, watching his sheep one day with his uh, guitar uh, in, in hand, and he thought, the Lord is my shepherd. Martin Luther said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. I think all the ideas that later inform his psalms uh, were, were developed at, at that time. And then one day the, the call came. Let me, uh, let me read beginning with verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. That's kind of a scary verse. Uh, the Old Testament writers do not ever accept secondary causes. God is responsible for everything. He is not in any sense implicated in evil. He does not send evil, but he permits it, and he accepts responsibility for it. And this uh, evil spirit that tyrannized Saul, terrified him, was... Uh, Spirit of insanity, he went, he went crazy. He'd be described today as bipolar, what, what used to be called manic depressive, one moment full of manic rage, the next uh, dark, uh, terrible depression. Saul's servant said uh, to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the, the harp with his hand, and you'll be well. They suggest music therapy, which is good therapy. Music does uh, calm the savage uh, breast. And this morning when I was teaching on this passage, I said beast, and all the English teachers in the congregation said breast, breast, breast. So I got it right this time. But it is true that, that music can have a calming effect upon our, upon our souls. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and, and bring him uh, to me. And uh, then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse. This would be another of the courtiers. I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician. A mighty man of valor. The word means exceedingly courageous. A warrior. Tested warrior. A one who is prudent in speech, insightful and, and articulate. And a handsome man. Literally a man of shape. Uh, talking about his physique, his body. Bottom line, the, the Lord is, is with him. Uh, here's David, the Renaissance man, you know, lyrical and tough. He, he, uh, he has it all. He's described as a, as a skilled musician, a skill that he had acquired during his years of, of tending uh, the sheep. Played uh, 
well, in Hebrew is called it sinor. It, it really is the uh, beginnings of the guitar. It's an instrument that had a sound box about so big. We, we, there are pictures of it from the wall, reliefs on walls and from about this period. Square, rectangular sound box with a couple of horns that come up like this and a bar across the top. Four strings, sort of tuned like a ukulele. And played very much like a guitar. It was very small, compact, could be, could be carried around. That was the instrument that David learned on, and then Amos tells us that he invented other musical instruments, and then later he was known as Israel's sweet singer. singer. He composed the music that later was sung in, in the temple by the temple choir. Seventy-three of the songs in the Psalter belonged to David and perhaps others that we're, that we're unaware of. Highly skilled uh, musician. And then he's described uh, here as a mighty man of valor, a, a warrior. I don't know where he got that reputation. We know that the, the Philistines had a garrison in, in the town of Bethlehem, and they guarded the only well in town, and people who wanted to, to draw from the well or irrigate from it had to pay a toll. They had harassed the people in Bethlehem for years. It's another environment that David uh, grew up. It's probably why his parents were poverty-stricken. He not only was, uh, grew up in an environment where he was spiritually impoverished, he was also physically impoverished. Jesse is described as having only a few sheep out in, in the wilderness, and it probably was uh, because of the Philistines. And it may be that David was engaged in some kind of guerrilla action against the, the, the Philistines uh, prior to his formal campaigns against them. We simply don't know. But he gained the reputation of being one tough little Turk. I would like to disabuse your mind of the notion that David was this delicate, sensitive little musician. He was not. As I picture him, I, you know, he's described here as a good of shape. You know, I, I, I'm talking about the shape here, not the person. If I, when I envision David, I think of Sylvester Stallone, this kind of little uh, compact, uh, chiseled physique and this shock of long hair and, you know, these brilliant uh, hawk eyes. And uh, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, The Wind and the Lion, with Sean Connery in it, when I saw that movie, and I, I thought, that's David. You know, both savage and, and sensitive. Odd sort of person. Combined so many uh, seemingly disparate qualities. Sensitivity to write this beautiful poetry and to compose music, and, and yet just tough to the core. Uh, when Jonathan, who was himself a real swashbuckling warrior, saw David. He loved him, the passage says, at first sight. He was drawn to him. They were cut out of the same block of, uh, of humanity. He understood him because they both were, were warriors at, at heart. And uh, then he's described here as uh, eloquent in speech. He was ex very articulate, very wise. The wisdom that had been gained from those silent years in the in the wilderness. He had a kind of elitism or magnetism that drew people to him. Wherever he went, people loved him. Uh, Saul, we're told, loved him when he came into the court. Jonathan loved him. Abigail loved him. Uh, unfortunately, Bathsheba also loved him. Uh, women made up songs about him. 
there, there were men that would follow him to their, to their death. He had this uh, kind of a delta force of mighty men that were willing to, to die for David. There's one very, uh, uh, in my mind, very poignant occasion where David was in the cave of Adullam and he was depressed and he said, oh, that I just had a drink of water from the well that's beside the gate in Bethlehem. And three or four of these uh, mighty men Broke, made their way down the mountainside to Bethlehem, broke their way through the Philistines, uh, the guard there, and, and, and drew water for David and brought it back to him. It shows the kind of devotion that, that David elicited from people. Gathered not only his Jewish countrymen, but uh, Uriah the Hittite and Ittai the Gittite and others that, from other countries that would, that would follow him to their death. But... Bottom line, the thing that I think tra- attracted them to David more than anything else was the fact that God was with him. They sensed in that, in that man a, a great heart for God. That's what drew people to him. You know, you, maybe you don't look like Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> maybe you aren't articulate and highly educated and you don't have the intelligence that David had. But that same kind of elitism, the thing that sets us apart from others, the same magnetism can be yours as you're deepening your relationship with, with God. So, um, verse 19, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who's with the flocks. He had gone back to the, the flock after his call. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine. A young goat sent him to Saul by David, his son. It is a very small gift, another indication of his poverty. And David, David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, be well and the evil spirit would, would depart from him. Uh, again, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that when the demons came and disturbed Saul, that David would stand over him and, and play with his harp and recite the hymns to him. You see, it wasn't so much the music as it was the words, which was the word of God. David was a prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and his words touched uh, Saul's heart and brought relief to him in those times of, of insanity. And, and it's my prayer as we study these psalms, and, and in that sense, David plays his harp, sings his song to us, that our hearts, like, like Saul's, will be, uh, will be refreshed. This is God's word coming to us through David's uh, poetry. All of this was part of the shaping process. The work went on. Uh, F.B. Meyer says, Thus always the rod, the stripes, the chastisements. But amid all the love of God carrying out his redemptive purpose, never hasting, never resting, never forgetting, but making all things work together until the evil is eliminated and the soul is purified. Remember David's prayer? Create in me an integrated heart, an undivided heart, a pure heart. And so David was given the, the gift of a dysfunctional home that, that drove him to God. He was given the hardship of the wilderness, the, 
the, the, the, the hammerings of, of his kinsfolk, you know, his townspeople who did not understand his, his zeal for God, who could never quite uh, handle David. They didn't know what to do with him and who scorned him and who, and who scoffed at him. And then he was put in David's, in Saul's court where, again, he was in a very dangerous situation while he was learning leadership there. Saul was trying to shish kebab him, as you know. He would occasionally, out of his madness, throw a spear at David, trying to, trying to kill him as he, as he played his, uh, his music. And, and then the work went on. They've had a very tragic marriage. In fact, two of them. He had a, a raft of rebellious children. His family broke his heart. His son uh, rebelled against him and drove David into, into exile. And there was a terrible ordeal, his affair, to use that lighthearted term that we use for such horrible uh, circumstances. He, he destroyed a family through his adulterous relationship with, with Bathsheba, murdered his, one of his best friends, Uriah the Hittite, was guilty of, of terribly violent acts. All of that was, was part of the hammering, hurting process that God used to soften David's heart and shape him and make him into the man that, that God intended him to be. Came across a poem this last week about David. Poems are always hard to quote in an audience because they're hard to follow. I wish I'd put it in the in the bulletin, but it goes like this: "Latest born of Jesse's race, wonder lights thy bashful face, while the prophet's gifted oil seals thee for a life of toil." We look at the anointing and we say, "How wonderful!" David got to be the illustrious king of Israel, but what we miss was the hammer and the file and the anvil, God's definite, destructive, drastic, determined work to make David into the man that God intended him to be. Heartache, woeful care, distress, blighted hope and loneliness, wounds from friends, gifts from foe, dizzied faith and guilt and woe, loftiest aims by earth defiled, gleams of wisdom, Sin beguiled, sad success, parental tears, and the dreary gift of years. This is the beginning of the story how, as the psalmist puts it, God took David from tending the sheep and made him the shepherd over his people, Israel, his inheritance. You know, the main message is not how God made a king out of David, but how God made a king for himself. Out of David. The important thing was that God was making David for his delight. David, like all of us, is made for God's love. Now, you may wonder if God has some grand and glorious scheme for you. He does. I can guarantee you that He does. He wants all of us to be to be useful. We all have our own call, our our sealed orders, like. Like David, he has something special for each one of us to do. Each one of us is, is of incalculable use to God. But the main thing that God is doing is not preparing us for ministry, but shaping us for himself. 
In fact, the longer I go in ministry, the more I see that the ministry itself is one of the tools that God uses to shape me. I, I thought for so many years that what God was doing was shaping me for ministry. And now I've come to see that ministry is just one of those uh, hammers and, and anvils and rasps that God is using to try to make something out of me. And I have found that the work that God is allowing me to do is not so much for him as it is for me and my perfecting. I came across a poem by Browning last week. I don't want to quote it to you. It's a little, little bit hard to understand, but he envisions us as a lump of clay on what he calls the plastic wheel of circumstance, and God's fingers are on us and he's shaping us and making us into a, a cup the purpose of which, he says, to find out the purpose of which, we have to look not down but up. And then, he says, that cup is made for the master's lips to slack his thirst. And that really touches me because uh, it tells me that what God is really after is not uh, my ministry. What God is after is me and you and our hearts and what he wants more than anything else is to have the privilege of shaping and making us into a cup that is of eternal delight to him. See, he's hungry for us. He thirsts for us. And we're that cup that slacks his thirst. So we have to look back on our whole life, the dysfunctional families, the tragic marriages, the rebellious children, the hammerings, the poundings. The hurtings of life are all part of the plan to make us a cup to slack his thirst. Now let's pray. Father, in, in some ways we find that very frightening. We would like for our lives to be uh, hassle-free. We want to leave, we want to live peaceful lives. We want, we want to be left alone. But uh, we thank you that in your love you will not leave us or forsake us, nor will you ever leave us alone. That you hound us and hector us, you stay on our trail, you put your hands on us and work us, change us, shape us, mold us into the woman or the man that you envision us to be, and down in our heart of hearts, that's what we long to be. And so, with some trepidation, trepidation, we give you permission to put your hands on us and make us a cup for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.